hello there, and welcome to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus. We're on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. Today is Monday, September 17th, 2012, and I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. And uh, the DeMarco Polo Show is all about undiscovered places and spicy and quirky discoveries. And today we have a local author who's written a somewhat quirky book. He's Martin Smith, editor of Orange Coast Magazine. He's author of three novels, Time Release, which was nominated for an Anthony, Shadow Image, and Straw Men, which was a finalist for both the 2002 Edgar Award and the 2002 Barry Award. With co-author Patrick Kiger, he wrote, Oops, 20 Life Lessons from the Fiascos that Shaped America and Popolorica, a popular history of the fads, mavericks, inventions, and lore that shaped modern America. He contributed the story Dark Matter to the Orange County Noir crime fiction anthology Akashic, published by Akashic in 2010, and wrote the introduction to Meeting Across the River, published by Bloomsbury in 2005, which was an anthology of short stories inspired by the Bruce Springsteen song of the same title. Marty has taught magazine feature writing and currently is a faculty member at the Squaw Valley Community of Writers. His new book that he's here to talk about today is The Wild Duck Chase, Inside the Strange and Wonderful World of the Federal Duck Stamp Contest published by Bloomsbury, which is an imprint of Walker. Hi, Marty. Hey, Barbara. How are you? Great. Great to have you on to talk about this book. Let's start with uh, hearing how the book came about. You know, I have no background whatsoever in (laughs) art or conservation, Um, and um, so there is a story there. Um, I was out for a bike ride in uh, October 2009 with a friend of mine who's an aerospace engineer, and I knew about five years ago he had started painting as a hobby. Um, and so we're riding along, and he's telling me the story of why he can't ride with me the following weekend. He said because he's going to be in Washington, D.C. for the judging of the federal duck stamp contest in which he was a contestant. And, you know, I had heard, never heard of this, and I, I said, well, tell me more about this. What is this? And he started to tell me a story that, it was just unimaginable to me that there was this this amazing conservation program that the United States government had been running since 1934. Uh, it's widely considered to be the most um, uh, uh, innovative and effective conservation program ever created in human history. And yet, at the center of that massive program is this quirky little annual art contest designed to come up with a design every year for the federal duck stamp, which is the revenue stamp that all hunters over the age of 16 in the United States are required to buy and put onto their hunting stamp. The idea, or their hunting license, rather. The idea is that, um, you know, the, the, um, the money that's raised by the sale of that stamp is then used to conserve waterfowl habitat. Uh, like I said, it's considered the the most effective conservation initiative in human history. <laughs> and yet the very centerpiece of it is this very unusual art contest in which about 250 wildlife artists from around the country every year compete for the honor of having their painting on that stamp. 
So interesting. That is really interesting. So you, so your friend told you the story, and then what happened? Well, at one point on that ride, he he uttered the phrase that um, absolutely hooked me. You know, it lured me down the rabbit hole. And the phrase was, or the, the sentence was, and you know, the Hotman brothers are the New York Yankees of the Federal Duck Stamp. <laughs> and I thought, okay, so there's this entire world that exists off everybody's radar screen. It has legends, it has heroes, it has dynasties, it has scandals, it has huge stakes. Uh, I've got to go in there. And and so I did. Um I came home and I, you know, the idea was fully formed in my head to write a magazine piece, which I did write for Orange Coast Magazine called The Wild Duck Chase that basically looked at my friend's efforts to compete in this contest. Um, and um, But it also dealt with the bigger picture of what the program was all about. But when I was done with it, I thought, you know, this is so interesting, and I'd met so many people while reporting that magazine story that I wanted to go deeper, and uh, I did. Um, I, I Before I even pitched it as a book, I went to Minnesota. I flew up to Minnesota for a week and introduced myself to a lot of the program officials who were there for uh, the junior duck stamp judging uh, that, that time of year, and I was able to meet with about a dozen of the artists who compete. Minnesota, I should say, is the center of the duck stamp universe, um, not coincidentally because that's the center of the, the sort of Midwestern flyway of the migrating birds, which means that's where all the hunters are, which that means that's where all the wildlife artists are. So Minnesota is, is the center of the universe. And so I, I went up there and started doing some reporting and came back. Um, and by the time I got back from that trip, uh, the book idea was just fully blown in my head. And um, within weeks, we had a contract with Bloomsbury. Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting because to another writer... This idea might have remained at the article level. You know, wrote the article, it's done, um, and move on to something else. But obviously there it was compelling enough to you, and you found enough going on that, um, that there was a book. Well, all the, all the elements were in place for, for high drama in this. You know, one of the things I learned when I was writing novels was that it begins with character. And I met so many interesting characters when I was in Minnesota working on this book, and I have subsequently met so many more. So I knew it, it, it had a good start. Um, the, the characters were fascinating. Um, all their motivations for, for doing this, all their obsessive uh, you know, ways they go about competing, um, it, this is a perfect vehicle for obsessives, and, and that makes for great characters. Hmm. Um, the other thing is uh, that I learned in novel writing is the stakes have to be very high. Now, it's interesting. The Federal Duck Stamp Contest does not come with any prize money to speak of. The honor that you get is the honor of having your painting on the federal stamp, and also you get a pane of stamps, uh, of your stamp, you know, your painting stamp, signed by the Secretary of the Interior. That's the prize. Um, now, that wouldn't be much to get excited about, but here's the thing. The artists get to keep the rights to their painting, and therefore the, the artists can sell limited edition prints of that painting. They also can license that image for everything from shower curtains to you know Christmas tree ornaments. <laughs> so they can make a lot of money by winning the Federal Duck Stamp Contest because a lot of wildlife art, art collectors and 
conservationists and stamp collectors want to have, for example, a limited edition print of that year's duck stamp painting. Um, there have been years documented where the winner was able to earn up to $2 million dollars um, uh, by simply winning this contest. Uh, for a while, people were regularly be able to earn about a million dollars from it. That's down for various reasons. There are fewer collectors. There are fewer uh, hunters um, and, and, and outdoors people, and therefore the market is diminished somewhat. But <clears throat> they are still able to, to make quite a bit of money from, from winning this contest. And so the stakes are enormous. So you've got great characters, high stakes, um, and built-in drama. You know, the, the contest itself is run a bit like American Idol. There's a panel of judges, and they review every painting that comes in, and in the first round of judging, you need it's a yes or no vote, and you either get a yes or a no, and you need three yes votes to move on to the next round. And the first round of judging is just brutal. Um, to have your painting up there and see five no votes is a soul-crushing experience. <laughs> um, and so there's drama. The artists do come to watch and see how their painting fares, and some of them have spent hundreds of hours on these paintings. Um, usually about 25 to 30 maybe pass into the second round. The first round is a brutal call, and they, they focus very quickly on, on uh, the, the best of the best. And then, the, you know, after the second round, um, they, they change the rating system to a one through five rating system. A five is the high score, a one is the low score. And for the third round, they do the same thing. And so it's very dramatic as it proceeds over the two days of judging. So you've got, like I said, great characters, high stakes, and all of a sudden a built-in dramatic vehicle for the thing, which is the final judging. It, it was just a no-brainer. This is going to be a great <laughs> book from the start. Interesting. You are listening to The DeMarco Polo Show, and I am with Marty Smith, author of The Wild Duck Chase, Inside the Strange and Wonderful World of the Federal Duck Stamp Contest. How many artists take part then? It's right now, the entries this year were right around 200. Mm -hmm. um, the year that I covered the contest, which was the 2010 contest year, I believe there were 236 entries. There have been times in the contest history where they would get thousands and thousands of entries. Um, this was at a time before they instituted the $125 entry fee, and so teachers were having their classes do you know, duck stamp paintings as a class project and submitting them. Um, that wasn't particularly productive, they found, so what they did was they, they decided to sort of limit it to serious wildlife artists, and these are the best wildlife artists in the country for the most part. Hmm. competing for this honor um, by instituting a, an entry fee. Um, and so you get generally between 200 and 250 right now. It would be wonderful to hear you read. Will you read from it, from your book? Sure. Um, I would like to read, the, the first passage I would like to read is from the prologue of the book. Okay. Um, uh, it sets up uh, the rest of the book, as a prologue should do, um, and it gives you some sense of, where the program has been and is going. Okay. Nothing at the corner of North Fairfax Drive and Vermont Street in Arlington, Virginia, suggests that the nondescript building at 4401 North Fairfax houses anything extraordinary, much less the three-office suite of one of the best ideas America's federal government has ever had. 
Even after a four-floor elevator ride, it's tricky to find the headquarters of the Federal Duck Stamp Program in the small labyrinth occupied by the Division of Bird Habitat Conservation, which itself is a 30-employee sub-node of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is part of the Department of the Interior. Duck Stamp Program Chief Patricia Fisher's guided tour takes all of two minutes. If you pause during that tour, though, you'll notice clues to a story that, told in full, might restore your faith in the often ineffective and inefficient U.S. government. The walls are hung with framed prints of painted ducks, including past winners of the Federal Duck Stamp Contest, the centerpiece of the program's peculiar magic. You also might notice a placard between the offices of Duck Stamp stalwarts Elizabeth Jackson and Laurie Schaefer that reads, Well-behaved women rarely make history. And on Schaefer's office wall, a framed stencil of a floating duck accompanied by the words, behave like a duck, stay calm on the surface, but paddle like crazy underneath. Those three women run the $852,000 a year program, which in 2010 generated about $24 million in revenue through the sale of an obscure revenue stamp to a dwindling number of hunters and stamp collectors and to what they hope is a growing number of enlightened birders and other conservationists. Since it began in 1934, what Fisher calls the little program that could has generated more than $750 million, and 98 cents of each dollar has been used to help purchase or lease 5.3 million acres of waterfowl habitat in the United States, which, with much of that land now protected within the National Wildlife Refuge System. And yet, by the summer of 2010, Fisher was worried and not just because the recent Deepwater Horizon rig explosion and subsequent ongoing BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico were temporarily consuming the attention and resources of the Fish and Wildlife Service, of which her program is a very small part. Her concern was a more chronic condition. Since assuming leadership of the program in 2005, Fisher had been scrambling to educate a largely unaware American public about the value of the federal duck stamp program, and to remind Congress, which controls its funding, not only that the program is effective, but also that it even exists. The program operates so efficiently and so far off the federal bureaucratic radar that a Federal Federal Freedom of Information Act request for any audits, white papers, or similar assessment reports on the program's efficacy triggers a kind of confounded head-scratching among Washington officialdom. In April 2010, Fisher went to St. Paul, Minnesota, to oversee the final judging of the Junior Duck Stamp Contest, a smaller-scale federal art competition designed to introduce the program to a nation of children these days primarily focused on iPods and Facebook rather than white wild waterfowl and acrylic paints. She has the look and demeanor of a stern high school teacher, which, with a master's degree in history, she could have been. Maybe it was her natural reverence for the past. Or maybe she was just exhausted after the conclusion of the contest judging that evening, but she clearly was grappling with questions about the program's future. The Duck Stamp stamp program is a relic from a different era, she said. How to make it modern, that's the challenge. That's what keeps me up at night, doing the best we can to treasure our program and make sure that other people appreciate it for what it is, how special it is. The program was started by environmental visionaries in the middle of the Dust Bowl area in the Great Depression, when the need to conserve resources for waterfowl seemed a frivolous pursuit in a nation desperate to simply feed itself. With real and raw emotion in her voice, Fisher added, I just really respect those people at the creation of the program and honor their memories. 
what they did was amazing to me. Everything worked. It was a tragic time for people and wildlife, but some amazing things came out of that. Not only the duck stamp program, but the Federal Work Projects Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, things like that. We have really historic roots, and it all came out of this tragic time. Fisher paused and peered over the top edge of her rimless eyeglasses. I don't want all that to go. It would be a terrible thing to lose. Mm, thank you so much. That was Marty Smith reading from the wild duck chase inside the strange and wonderful world of the Federal Duck Stamp Contest, published by Bloomsbury. Um, so, there's so much to actually talk about, um, and I... Well, let me just back up a little bit. Is this the only stamp that raises money for a good federal cause that you know? No, there are there are other revenue stamps. Um, um, in fact, every state um, has emulated this program. There are now state wildlife stamps um, and, and contests that, that generate the art for those. So this is probably the most emulated conservation program in the world. Uh, other countries, in fact, have, have done the same. England, Australia, Japan uh, all now have waterfowl revenue stamps um, pegged to the, uh, that, that have art at their center. So it, it's by far not the only one, but it was the original, and it is the one that has um, been the most effective. You can literally, the, the acreage that I, I, I use, 5.3 million acres, you have to keep in mind that's an area roughly the size of Massachusetts that this little program has conserved and put into um, into trust for future generations um, over its 78-year history. Um, it, uh, I called it the best idea that our federal government has ever had. I truly believe that. Hmm. Well, so does, so does that money trickle down to, say, you know, here in Orange County we have, we have wetlands? Um, you know, I suppose all over the place there are wetlands. Does it trickle down, and how does it trickle down? Well, there are two two ways that does that. Um, some of the um, there's a there's a uh, fish and wildlife realty division that I, their sole purpose is to identify um, habitat that that should be conserved for the the, the um, for the survival of various species. Um, they they keep a list of all of you know great both great swaths swaths of land as well as small parcels. Um, um, for example, in the Midwest, there's an area, the, the vast bulk of the Midwest of the United States is in what's called the prairie pothole region. The potholes that they're referring to across the prairie are these little indentations that were left when the glaciers receded that become ponds uh, when it rains. Um, they're little divots in the landscape. And sometimes when you fly over areas of Wisconsin or Minnesota, um, you can see 50, 60, 70 of these little ponds on an acre of land. Um, that is prime duck territory. Now, if you're a farmer, that's, that's useless land. Um, and so what, what this realty division does, you know, what, what farmers would prefer to do is fill in those little ponds and plow and plant on them. That way they can get revenue from them. What this realty division does is they identify those little tiny spots and say, look, you know, we will buy an easement on this piece of property because it has all these ponds on it so you don't fill them in so that the ducks now have migratory, you know, rights to these and they can stop and feed and nest and do all those things that ducks do. 
Um, so this realty division identifies small parcels like that to save and, and makes proposals to do that. The money from the program allows them to do that. Um, and the other way they do it is they identify big habitats, such as the Bolsa Chica wetlands, um, and says, okay, this needs to be conserved. Um, let's work out a deal. Let's find out how we can make this work so that nobody, for example, builds a housing development on it. Now, they were not specifically involved in the Balsa Chica wetlands, but they're looking at places like that all over the country to save. Um, here in Orange County, we have the Seal Beach National Wildlife Refuge. It did not get any duck stamp money, but that's only because it was a government military base to begin with. The government didn't mm. buy that land. They already owned that land. So there's no duck stamp money in that. But if you go on the federal duck stamp website, they have a breakdown of how much duck stamp money went to each of the National Wildlife Refuges uh, across the country, and there are 556 of them at this point, I think. Um, the vast majority of them um, uh, have received federal duck stamp money. And like I said, over 78 years, an area the size of Massachusetts has been conserved. It's, a, it's pretty remarkable. Wow, this is fascinating. This is really fascinating, Marty. <laughs> It is. Well, it, it gets weirder when you get into um, the contest itself because, like I said, it's peopled by some of the most interesting characters you will ever meet. And, and, and so the backdrop for this contest is this amazing conservation program. But the, the foreground of it are these really interesting people that spend the better part of their year obsessing about how to do a duck stand. Hmm. We're going to talk more about this when we come back. So all of you out there, stay with us. We're going to be right back with more Marty Smith and the Wild Duck Chase. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org and iTunes College Radio. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and we've been here with Martin Smith, who is editor of Orange Coast Magazine and author of many books, the new one being The Wild Duck Chase, Inside the Strange and Wonderful World of the Federal Duck Stamp Contest, published by Bloomsbury. Hey, Marty. Hey there. That title has a nice rhythm to it, too. Thank you. Did you work on that? We did. Actually, I have to admit, it was a, a bit of a collaboration here at the magazine. As I mentioned, it was the original title we used on the magazine piece um, that, that preceded the book. And I proposed that as the title for the book itself, and Bloomsbury liked it, so we went with it. Yeah, I mean, aside from the rhythm of it, just it has that qu kind of quirky quality that your nonfiction books have. You know that you know that when you open it up, it's it's not going to be a dry read on the history of a stamp, but you're gonna you're gonna find something sort of whimsical and and uh, magical and fun. So um, yeah, great title. Well, thank you, and, and I think the secret to, to quirk, and I, as you know, I'm all about quirk. Um, you know, the the secret to that is finding the, the soul of the people who are living this story, and um, and understanding where they're coming from, and and what drives them. And I have another section here I'd like to read yeah. with you that sure. it kind of gets at this. This is the, the the beginning of chapter six, which is called the annual ordeal of artistic choices. One of my <laughs> ideas for going into this story was I wanted to follow the artists 
through an entire year of decision making for you know for this duck stamp contest, at some point, the uh, the, the uh, duck stamp program releases the list of the five eligible species that all the artists are able to paint that year. They choose from about forty possibilities, but each year they come up with five, uh, just so they can kind of keep you know comparing apples to apples, so that you know that they're they're painting a limited range of waterfowl for this contest that year. And um, as soon as those five eligible species are known, the artists start their guessing game. Now, keep in mind, they don't know who the judges are going to be. They don't necessarily always know where the contest is going to be held or where the judges are going to be from or what the prejudices of the judges might be or you know, the likes and dislikes of the judges. It's a guessing game. And... Um, and like I said, this is a perfect vehicle for obsessives because they can obsess for <laughs> months about what type of duck they want to paint and how they want to paint it and how they want to pose it. Is it swimming? Is it flying? Is it sitting on a nest? Is it by itself or is it in pairs, a male and a female? All these choices ultimately are going to impact what gets chosen that year. And so this opening of this chapter gets a little bit at that that. Um, down the rabbit hole kind of obsession. Okay. Through the spring and summer of 2010, in every corner of the Pro-Am competitive duck painting universe, the 235 wildlife artists who plan to compete in the upcoming federal duck stamp contest are making a series of educated but often pointless guesses about what the judges might want. And the more you talk to the artists who compete, the more they remind you of baseball players whose adherence to inviolable pregame routines and superstition, refusing to step on the foul line, for example, or to shave during a hitting streak, is a nod to whatever mysterious forces they believe control their fate. Both find comfort in the illusion of control. Why else would so many artists spend so much time and energy speculating? To recap, duck stamp paintings are judged anonymously in the order in which they've been submitted and by an entirely different panel of five judges fishing. each year, whose names are not announced until the day the contest judging begins. Each of those judges carries out their mission using their own aesthetic sensibilities, based on their background in art, conservation, politics, outdoorsmanship, or whatever other field they've been drawn from. Trying to predict what the judges will choose in any given year is like trying to predict earthquakes or read the future in scattered chicken bones. <laughs> But every year, most competing artists try. In addition, duck stamp artists compete against opponents whose names they may not know and whose work they cannot see until after they've finished their own entry. They simply have no idea whether they've chosen a species that by sheer numbers will quickly seem stale to the judges or how, for example, their Canada Goose painting will compare to the 83 other Canada Goose paintings that eventually will be entered in the 2010 contest. Many artists try to divine likely duck stamp trends from the previous year's entries, an almost always futile exercise. One contest watcher recalls a year when one of the judges was known to be an avid decoy collector. Because the winning painting that year included a decoy, the following year's field included more than the usual number of paintings featuring decoys. The artists who made that choice did so, of course, even though that particular judge would not be on the panel judging their entry. Logic has nothing to do with it. It's the same with the rituals and routines of individual artists. 
California's Sherry Russell Moline, whose 2005 winning painting ended up on the 2006-2007 stamp and made her the only the second female female federal duck stamp artist, paints late at night with her TV tuned to Fox News. Why? It's just her thing. She also tries to postmark her entry by August 1st, about two weeks before the August 15th deadline. When she misses her superstitious self-imposed deadline by a few days in 2010, she worries about it until she finally puts her portrait of a nesting Canada goose in the mail. Adam Grimm, whose win in 1999, when he was just 21, made him the youngest winner in federal duck stamp contest history, displacing Jim Hotman, tries to time sending his entry each year to the to place it in the middle group of arrivals rather than among the first or last entries. He claims with unshakable certainty, it's been shown that the judges are more likely to put through your painting if it's in the middle of the pack. But getting into the middle of the group is hard to do. It's like a whole science. That's great. You are just listening to Marty Smith read from The Wild Duck Chase, published by Bloomsbury, an imprint of Walker. Yeah, it's just so interesting, and um, I was—I'm—I'm I'm curious if if you wrote this as um, standalone chapters that that almost essays in and of themselves, or or if you have um, if before you started when you knew you were going to do the book when you got got the contract if you outlined it as you might a novel. This book was a joy from the very beginning. Uh, like I said, it was born full-blown in my head um, during that bike ride. Um, it, you know, I was so confident in the idea that I went ahead and started reporting it before I had ever sold it as a book. Um, and it felt like it was on rails from beginning to end. I literally outlined the whole book during my carpool ride one day on my way into work after I got back from Minnesota. Um, and that outline, you know, chapter by chapter, I think is is exactly what ended up in the book. Um, uh, I I wrote it as uh, as a whole thought. I, I can't say I wrote it each chapter individually. Although I will say each chapter broke down very naturally in my mind. Uh, I knew I wanted to build the dramatic arc of the story around the judging of the contest. So the book opens. Um, on the first day of judging, uh, in 2010, judging was held in Berkeley, California. The subtext of that is to, to draw more attention to the contest, um, the, the, uh, the federal officials that run it have started moving it around the country, out of Washington, D.C., trying to introduce the duck stamp to the wider population of the United States. Their first move out of, out of Washington, D.C. was to hold the contest in Berkeley, California. Now, keep in mind, this is a gathering of mostly hunters. Um, and they thought, okay, if we have it in Berkeley, there's a chance it might make some headlines because they will, you know, they'll protest anything in Berkeley. Um, and so they, they brought it to Berkeley and, and, uh, and were disappointed when no protesters actually showed up because it's so far off everybody's radar. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, you know, I knew, so I knew I wanted to, that would be the structure of the story, is those two days of judging. But coming together into those two days of judgings were all the backstories of all the artists that I'd been following that year and how their painting would fare and what would happen. Um, it was a very natural, easy-to-do structure for the book, um, and it suggested specific chapters. Um, 
you know, uh, you know, first round of judging, second round of judging, third round of judging. So I sprinkled those throughout the arc of the book um, and built in the backstories of the artists between that, and it just came very naturally. Hmm. That's fascinating. And and Walker Bloomsbury, they, you know, one book after another. I I love everything that they that they uh, publish. What a great publisher. You know, it's the right publisher for this particular book, and, and that's something my agent, Susan Ginsberg, said. Um, you know, when I was in Minnesota, we had the first nibble, and the first nibble came from Walker, Walker Bloomsbury. And my agent said at that time, I knew if anybody was going to get this, it would be them. Hmm. They do quirky books really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and she assured me that if they were to go for it, this was exactly the right publisher. And God bless them, they did. Hmm. You are listening to the DeMarco Polo Show. We have a few minutes left with Marty Smith. His book is The Wild Duck Chase, published by, as we're, we just said, Bloomsbury, an imprint of Walker. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking, it just seems more and more, I'm seeing more and more narrative nonfiction books. Um, someone who was on the show last week, um, Kathleen Sharp, said she thought there was a trend, you know, sort of, Toward narrative nonfiction, are you seeing anything like that going on? You know, it's hard to say, and trends are always tricky in publishing. Um, you know, if something hits big, and all of a sudden there's, you know, think of the vampire books. You know? <laughs> um, somebody, you know, it, you know, uh, it, it hits big, and all of a sudden everybody's writing a vampire book. But the trend is over. Um, it's over by the time that first round is over. So it's a little tricky to try and gauge what you want to write based on what you think the marketplace is asking for, because it's almost always wrong. Um, I think the enduring thing, uh, you know, is always going to be, is it a good story? And I, I would extend that to fiction as well as nonfiction. Um, if it's a great story, great characters, high stakes, um, um, and it's well told, uh, whether you tell that as as a fictional story or as narrative nonfiction, I think that's the only thing that we can all count on as writers um, to, to to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned long ago that the only thing the writer can control in the publishing business is what's on the page. Mm. Grab a great story, tell it as best you can, and hope that that's you know that's going to find uh, you know a, a Bloomsbury that gets it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, even on a on a you know smaller scale, on an essay scale, because you get a lot of a lot of um, submissions there at the magazine. And what can you speak at all about what you tend to I don't know be gravitated toward, or what you see happening in a, in an essay that you end up publishing? You know, I'm always drawn to a personal story with a universal theme. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of writers, uh, essay writers, tend to do is they try to articulate the universal theme, um, when in fact the better way to do it is to tell a great personal story, um, something that, you know, the stakes were enormous to you because it was happening to you. Make me care about that. And then somewhere artfully in that essay, make it clear to me, whether it be overt or, or you know, or... Or, or very subtle, make it clear to me why this story is relevant to people beyond simply the writer. Um, it can be a, a few deaf strokes. It can be a word choice. It can be one sentence. It can be a paragraph that 
that sort of connects the dots for the reader to make them understand why this, what the universal theme of this essay is. Mm-hmm. But you can't stray too far from that great personal story. Um, it's you know if you've got a great personal story and it's well told, you know chances are the universal theme is going to make itself apparent even without too much effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. As you were working on the wild duck chase, did you, I mean, I can't imagine that you ever run into any sort of blockades or any kind of, you know, challenges where you don't know where to go next. Do you? And if you do, <laughs> what do you do? You know, I, you know, I think as writers, <laughs> we, we're pretty resourceful people. Um, you know when it feels like work. Um, that means that something's not quite right what you're doing. Maybe you've written yourself into a corner and you've limited your options. Um, you know, I've found great success by, by sort of stepping back from the story I'm trying to tell and say, okay, have I thought about this in every way I possibly can? You know, and I try to turn that story around and look at it from different angles and see, is there a point of view I've missed here? Um, um, a good example from the Wild Duck Chase is, um, you know, okay, so you've got 250 wildlife artists who paint in roughly the same style. Um, uh, they're all very sort of photorealistic, naturalistic paintings of waterfowl in their habitats. But there's this one guy every year who enters, and his painting looks like nobody else's. And the reason is he's a, an avant-garde artist. There's a guy named Rob McBroom who enters the contest every year, and this is a strain for him. It's a $125 entry fee. He doesn't make a whole lot of money, but he has entered the contest every year for the past 10 years just to make an artistic statement, and the artistic statement he makes is he goes completely the other direction. His paintings include rhinestones and glitter and you know actual feathers and perfume strips from magazines and holograms, and he creates ducks out of just improbable things. It looks like nobody else's. It's never gotten a single yes vote on the first round of judging. Well, it has. One year, a good-humored judge gave it a yes vote, knowing it would not advance. But, you know, it's a doomed painting every year in a contest where it's, it's never going to succeed. And yet everybody at the Federal Duck Stamp Office looks forward to this painting every year because it's such a different take on it. And and I guess that's what I... The point I'm trying to make is... You know, you, you turn it around, and, and so that, you know, Rob McBroom's entry every year became an entire chapter in the book called What is Art Anyway? And it's a way of looking at naturalistic wildlife art versus avant-garde art versus what museums think is art. Um, and it's a very interesting discussion, all prompted by this one guy that, you know, if I had overlooked him, um, that component would not be there in the story. Let me, do I have time to tell you one quick run? Yeah. I love this story. This is a guy, he's a bit of a provocateur, right? Um, uh, this is a guy who, at age 34, has already owned two hearses in his lifetime. <laughs> um, he works at a punk rock record label, and, um, and, but he's a really fine, fine artist. And um, one year his painting was disqualified. He had pasted a perfume strip from a magazine into it, and it had some embossed lettering on it. Well, that's forbidden by the duck stamp rules. You can't have lettering in your painting, so they disqualified him. So he's thought about that. And in the next year entry, uh, he came up with a painting of, of a black scoter duck on a pond in a rainstorm. 
So I was up in Minnesota, and he's flipping through, and he's showing me his entries, and he shows me this one. And he says, see the raindrops? And I said, yeah, that's cool. They're kind of moving diagonally across the frame. And he says, it's Morse code. I said, <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, Rob, what, what does it say? And he said, it's dialogue from a porn movie. Um, he <laughs> had taken this really filthy dialogue, and he sent me the transcript of it, and it, it was really filthy, and had transcribed it into Morse code, and those became the raindrops for his for his painting. And I just love the idea of of federal officials gathered to judge these paintings, completely unaware of what they were looking at. Uh, and and you have to keep in mind this contest unfolds every year with all the the ceremony of Kabuki theater. I mean, it is scripted, it is staged, it's taken very, very seriously. Every painting, no matter how bad, is judged with reverence and respect and dignity. Um, and yet, here's this really filthy porn movie dialogue. <laughs> um, and the judges, of course, are giving it all due consideration. It was just, it was just a brilliant little stroke. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, this, this contest is just full of characters. Um, you know, I... I um wanted to ask you about something I read. I think it was a Kirkus review that I read about the book. And the end of it, um, the reviewer says, despite the stakes, the media is apathetic about this successful federal program and the Pro-Am contest isn't well known outside of the hunting and collecting world. Smith aims to fix that. And I'm curious, was that your mission in, in doing the book, book, your ultimate mission, or no? You know, I'm, I'm. I guess I'm a sort of a, you know, a, a sideline cheering conservationist. <laughs> I like the idea of of saving uh, habitat for species that need it. Um, but I'm not a hunter. I'm not a fisherman. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a rabbit outdoorsman. And um, and I certainly know nothing about art. Um, but there was something to me that that was really appealing about the idea of shining a very bright spotlight on a little program that actually works really, really well. It does exactly what it was intended to do. Um, at a time when, you know, we are all caught up in this smaller government, government can't do anything right kind of, you know, uh, bashing that goes on during an election year, mm. you know, I, I do think it's worthwhile, and this was not my mission, but I do think it's a happy consequence of this book, is to step back once in a while and say, okay, wait a minute, you know, Government does have a role. You know, let's face it, by 1934 in this country, we had strip-mined all of our wildlife. Everybody knows the story of the buffalo. The wild waterfowl was exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. We had strip-mined it because there were no government regulations on it. Um, there were no bag limits. There no, were no um, hunting seasons. By 1934, there wasn't much left, and there wasn't going to be much left for future generations. But the federal government decided wait a minute, somebody needs to be responsible for holding this stuff in trust for future generations, and we're going to do that. Um, the government stepped in and said, we're going we're to create this program. It's self-funded. The, the hunters are going to tax themselves for the right to, to you know, hunt these birds. They are going to now conserve the habitat for those birds. Such a simple idea, and it has worked so beautifully for all these years. I felt it was my privilege to be able to shine a bright spotlight on that. Hmm. Well, in closing, uh, I wanted to say you're, you're one of the few writers I know who managed to 
hold down a full-time job and manage to also write and publish books. And um, I wonder if you can say a few few words about that, because this is something I hear so often with, uh, you know, mostly new writers, but even even mid-writers, you know, where it's like, well, I'm just too busy, I have to work, I have the family. I mean, you know, how do you do it? I have a four-word mantra that I've followed for the last two decades, um, and it works like a charm. Um, it's 10 hours a week. Um, and by that, I mean, if you can apply yourself toward a goal for 10 hours a week above and beyond what you do to make a living, um, anything is possible. Um, I think many of us get caught up in the idea that uh, my life, um, I have to set all the goals and ambitions, you know, the person I wanted to be when I was 17, I have to put that aside in order to make a living and support my family. What I suggest to people is that you don't have to do that. If you're willing to commit an extra 10 hours a week, wherever you can get those 10 hours a week, our friend Susan Strait, she got her 10 hours a week by writing her novels, wonderful novels, in her minivan while waiting outside her daughter's basketball mm-hmm. practices. Um, uh, for me, when my kids were younger, I got my 10 hours a week by getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and writing till 6, and then getting them up and taking them to school and going to work and coming home and going to bed early that night and doing, doing it all again the next morning. For the wild duck chase, I simply set aside Saturdays for a year. I said, every Saturday for the next year, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write this book, and that's what I did. Um, 10 hours a week. I, I did a... a um, a commencement address at Irvine Valley College a year and a half ago uh, that's available on the web. If you type in my name and, and 10 hours a week, um, it'll likely pop up mm-hmm. video on YouTube uh, where I kind of elaborate on that idea. But, but the idea is you don't have to give up all those dreams. You just have to find a way to make them work. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And you have, and and uh, that's that's great. And I applaud you for that because... You know, you you were prolific, and and everyone should uh, take a lesson here. <laughs> thank you, Marty, so much for coming on to talk about this book, and uh, thank you for writing it. Always a pleasure, Barbara. Thank you. You're welcome. It was Marty Smith. His book is The Wild Duck Chase, uh, Inside the Strange and Wonderful World of the Federal Duck Stamp Contest, published by Bloomsbury. And, yeah, you can Google his name, and you will find out a lot about him. You'll find that commencement address, and uh, Marty's just such a great proponent of of writers and uh, and the process. And uh, he makes me happy because he he's encouraging. He you know as an editor, he helps writers get started. Can't say enough about the guy. But I do have to go now because the next show is is ready. Uh, ready to be broadcast, and my time is done here. So thank you for listening to the DeMarco Polo Show. Um, I'll be back here Wednesday morning, or Marie will, doing Writers on Writing at 9 a.m. So uh, come back and, and listen more. See you soon.